G'day, g'day, guys. Now, before we dive into today's show, I want to ask you a few quick questions. Are you looking to take your investing career to the next level? Are you wanting an accountability partner who will push you to achieve your goals? Are you needing to surround yourself with successful investors and entrepreneurs in order to up your game and take control of your life? Well, if you've answered yes to any of those questions, I am super pumped and excited to announce that I'm starting the Syndicator Incubator Mastermind Group. This mastermind is a group of highly motivated, abundance-orientated, hand-selected hustlers and entrepreneurs who are ready to take that next step in their investing career. We are now taking applications for the next group of champions. If you're interested to find out more, then email me at info, that's I-N-F-O, at reedgoosens.com and put in the subject line, The Syndicator Incubator. Being a part of this mastermind group, you will have unlimited access to both myself and my business partner, Andrew Campbell, and you will understand how we have been able to build a portfolio of over 1,200 units worth over $120 million in under 24 months, and we've achieved financial freedom in the process. There are once a month mastermind calls with the group and a yearly conference where you will learn from the best in the business. So what are you waiting for? There are only limited spots, so get your application pack by emailing me at info at reedgoosens.com. And remember, be bold, be brave, and go give life a crack. I find most of the time companies are trying to figure out how, with limited resources, what should we do next? And I don't have a lot of magic for that. I call it, you, you know, you're usually trying to pick what's our least bad option. And that's not, um, I'm just not, that doesn't get me out of bed in the morning. You know, I mean, like I told you during our, our pre-interview, I madly in love with my wife, madly in love with my two girls, my, my kids. So if I'm going to, you know, fly and go meet with a company, we've got to be disruptive. We've got to figure out how we can look forward to recessions, do something crazy that's worth um, flying for. Welcome to Investing in the US, a podcast for real estate investors, business owners, and aspiring entrepreneurs looking to break into the US market. Join Reid as he interviews go-getters, risk-takers, and the best in the business about their journey towards financial freedom and the sheer joy of creating something from nothing. G'day, g'day, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another cracking edition of Investing in the US podcast from Los Angeles. I'm your host, Reed Goosens. Good as always to have you with us on the show. Now, I'm glad that you've all tuned in to learn from my incredible guests, and each and every one of them are the cream of the crop here in the United States when it comes to real estate investing, business investing, and entrepreneurship. Each show, I try and tease out their incredible stories of how they have successfully created their businesses here in the US, how they've created financial freedom, massive amounts of cash flow, and ultimately created extraordinary lives for themselves and their families. Life by design, as I like to say. Hopefully, these guests will inspire all of my cracking listeners, which are you guys, to get off the couch and go and take massive amounts of action. If these guys can do it, so can you. Now, as you know, I'm all about sharing the knowledge with my loyal listeners, which is you guys, and there's absolutely no BS on this show, just straight into the nuts and bolts. Now, if you do like this show, 
show, the easiest way to give back is to give us a review on iTunes and you can follow me on Facebook and Twitter by searching at Reed Goosens. You can find the show wherever you podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher and Google Play. But you can also find these episodes up on my YouTube channel. So head over to reedgoosens.com, click on the video link and it will take you to the video recordings of these podcasts where you can see my ugly mug but the beautiful faces of my guests each and every week. All right, enough out of me. Let's get cracking and into today's show. Today on the show, I have the pleasure of speaking with Jonathan Slane. Jonathan is the founder and CEO of Recession.com, an author, a highly respected keynote speaker, and an expert on recessions and why businesses owners don't need to fear them. Having come from the world of investment banking, working on mergers and acquisitions, Jonathan has seen firsthand how successful businesses hit plateaus over time. Now working exclusively with founders, owners, CEOs, and management team, Jonathan, management teams, I should say, Jonathan uses his that experience to help the best-in-class companies around the globe achieve their vision of success. I'm really pumped and excited to have him on the show to share his incredible insight and knowledge with us and the audience. But enough out of me, let's get him out here. G'day, Jonathan. Welcome to the show. How are you doing today, mate? Awesome, ready to rock. <laughs> Mate, I can see in your background there in your green skin, rock the recession. Tell me a little <laughs> like bit about that? the uh, yeah. Tell me a little bit about the branding behind that. That's awesome. Well, so my co-author Paul Belair and I, we really wanted to add something original to the conversation on recessions. And as we looked on Amazon, as we looked on Google, there's a lot of discussion around recessions for how you just survive them, and mm-hmm. what the game plan is for cutting overhead, firing people and just making it through. And our take on it uh, is different. We want uh, the audience to listen on how can you rock the recession? You know, what are the, the things that you can do as a business owner, business leader, investor, entrepreneur to look forward to the next recession, which is not the usual take. And so we mm-hmm. thought um, we could be disruptive since we've got some personal experience with that that we wanted to share with the world. Awesome, awesome. Well, before we dive into that, because yeah. it's, it's going to be a juicy topic of today, let's uh, let's rewind the clock. Tell me how you made your first ever dollar as a kid. So it was giving computer lessons to old people. I know that there's probably <laughs> a politically correct way to put that, but I know that um, I guess I've always been an entrepreneur when I think back to that. And so I know in my neighborhood when I was a kid, um, probably 12 or 13, Uh, My first buck came from computers were new and just helping um, the senior citizens in our neighborhood (laughs) figure out how to log on to America online or how to, um, how to use their computers. That's awesome. That's, it's such a funny world that we live in. I, uh, I do know even my, my, my folks get a bit of cell yell when they're yelling over the phone. (laughs) (laughs) They're they're, they're figuring out how to do a selfie. It's, uh, it's pretty hilarious as, uh, as you see the older generation, the baby boomers, so, so to speak, you know, trying to figure out what's going on. I know every time I go back to Australia, uh, the internet bill seems to go up because obviously I use a lot of internet and down under they have a different way of billing and he always tries to blame it on us kids and I was like dad it's not us it's your your bad poor internet speed and so it's pretty freaking funny but but mate tell me walk us through the journey of how you've gone from you know giving computer lessons into the the world that you are now and maybe touch a little bit about on your mergers and acquisitions background yeah so I went down to the University of North Carolina for school so I'm a proud Tar Heel and got a degree in political science. The reason I bring that up is because it has nothing to do uh, with what I currently do. 
uh, except that it gave me a good background uh, in different professors. Um, so that's what I really majored in was taking the best professors in school. And so graduated and got into investment banking. And the reason for that is that my job in investment banking and mergers and acquisitions was to help tell the story of the company that we were trying to sell. So I wasn't the guy that was really building the Excel spreadsheets, the valuation models. Uh, there were others in our group that were far better at that than I was, but I could write good. Uh, that, that's a joke. I know it's right. Well, uh, <laughs> so, but, but, I get it. But, I yeah, get it. Yeah. Just want to make sure you're with me, but yeah. So, um, but I can help craft the story. And so um, from there, uh, working 80 to 100 hours a week for two years, uh, there was a pivot point where uh, my brother-in-law asked me if I would come check out a, a business opportunity with him in Denver. And that was this fitness franchise uh, called Fitness Together. So I went out there with him just as an expert on business because I was doing investment banking. And on the flight home, I said, why don't I leave the bank and do this with you? And so I guess uh, I had a two-year stint having a boss, uh, working for somebody else. And I don't know, Reed, I guess that transistor is broken off in my brain where I just can't um, work for anybody else. Uh, so um, got back into being an entrepreneur. Uh, and then the book kind of takes you through uh, a lot of what happened during those 10 years with owning the gyms. Right. And so owning what what gym was that and i guess before i get into that it, it, you talk about your 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 receptors in your brain about how we as entrepreneurs function right and i think all of us who are listening to this show aspire to be entrepreneurs and we have that thing that loose connection up there that hey screw these w2s and 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 and, and being in my lane i'm going to go out instead of earning money for my boss i'm going to go out and earn money for myself and it's just a completely different mind shift change you got to take those blinkers off but i'm sure it was a bit of a a leap of faith, right? When you when you when you're flying home from Denver after you know working with your brother-in-law on that that first business, right? Oh, for sure. I mean, I had a a great job in investment banking, um, six figures. If I stayed in it and just kept grinding, I'm sure I could have been a partner and then eventually uh, been very successful financially. My issue was um, I don't think I was meant to um, have a boss because when I left, my boss, who's still a good friend and a mentor of mine. I remember I was in his office, I, let, I gave him my letter of resignation and he said, you know what? You're too much of a pain in the ass to work for anybody anyways. <laughs> and he said it with all due love, but uh, so, so that was one part. And the other was, um, Reed, I just, I didn't like the life that I saw mm. for the, the full-time investment bankers. There was a lot of divorce. There was a lot of being estranged from their kids. Uh, and I just didn't, um, I didn't want that. So when I was thinking it through before I really had the golden handcuffs, uh, I just, I, I guess I, I knew I had to, to do my own thing. And so that's where the pivot happened. That's awesome, man. I think that's, and I think a lot of people realize that. And I think you are, uh, articulated it quite well in terms of realizing or seeing the future, like seeing your future self of like golden handcuffs, your kids hate you, you're divorced probably three or four times, but but but, but I drive this really awesome car, <laughs> you know what I mean? I have no, and I'm working 100 hours a week. So I think that's uh, that lifestyle change and that want to have that work-life balance and, and, and rather work for yourself so you have this lifestyle and you're successful not only in business, but in other aspects of life, I think is really 
a good mindset shift um, early on in your career. So, so well done. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. I The only thing I have to comment on is that uh, I don't want the audience to get the impression that I'm not still working 80 to 100 <laughs> hours a week because I am. I mean, I right, know, right. We all a, do. A, you know, a lot of uh, why I do this is so that I get to um, get out of bed in the morning and be fired up about um, what I'm going to sure. get to do that day. And so it's not, I haven't figured it out. I've read the four hour work week. I've tried to figure that out. Um, I know a lot of what I'm talking about in the book is how do you hack the usual need to hustle and grind to get to where you want to go. Uh, and at the same time, I do think that there's still a significant amount of effort that I need to put in to be successful with getting the message out about this book and all the other stuff that I do. So that, but beyond that, I just, I want to make that point clear. No, 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 no. Trust me. I, I know full well <laughs> as an entrepreneur myself, when you now, you only eat what you kill, yeah. right? If you're yeah. not, if you're not out there hustling, you're not getting any pay and you, you know, your 401k goes away for a little bit. Your, your insurance, health insurance goes away. There is a scary edge or ledge that you look over thinking, geez, if I jump, I, I better have a parachute that's going to catch me. Right. So, and, and it all comes down to, to us as the entrepreneur going out and hustling. So on that point, you said a hack about needing to hustle and grind. Talk to me a little bit more about that. That's really interesting because a lot of people do not understand what we as entrepreneurs do. They think they're just kicking the heels up and off on a beach somewhere. Yeah, I, I think that uh, what I'm reacting to is I think in a lot of business media uh, and business books lately, the message is that you got to hustle and grind in order to be successful. And then when you're done hustling and grinding, you got to drive Uber every uh, waking hour that you're not hustling and grinding. And that right. that's really, if you do that, that's the way to be successful. And my take on it is that there are opportunities and I, the one that I happen to focus on are the, the recession opportunities, but those opportunities can let you quickly 10x what you're doing. And they can let you kind of skip that line so that you don't have to work for 40 years, 80 to 100 hours a week uh, in order to have any chance at success. Because there are opportunities, I interview a lot of those stories in, in the book where people have figured out ways to be able to do it faster and to be able to do it with less brain damage than just working uh, 20 hours a day every day. So I am- Give us an example. Yeah, I am a little, uh, I do think that, that there, there's our society right now, at least in the US, a lot of it is the mentality that unless you just work all day, every day, that that's the only path mm -hmm. to, to financial freedom and success. Yeah, I completely agree with you on that, particularly around the, the American way of like you get two, I think in, in a W2, <laughs> like you get two weeks a year off. Right. Like it's this whole, you know, I, I tell my business partner, I'm going back to Australia for a month and he's like, what the hell? And I was like, dude, I'm not, of course I'm going to keep working. I've just got my computer, my laptop. I just might work, you know, four or five hours less a day than what I usually do. It's just, as long as I've got internet, I can keep working. But the whole psyche here in America of like, don't take two more than two weeks off because, oh my gosh, you know, things are going to fall apart. It's, uh, yeah, I completely hear you on that when it terms of grind, 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 hustle, 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 and you'll get to some point in the future, then all of a sudden you stop doing that. I, I don't, you know, I don't know. So it's sort of like that work-life balance. So uh, very good points there. What type of examples do you have in the book of people going out and hustling and grinding to change that shift of, you know, like a rice burner consistently just pedaling and not actually getting anywhere right. and the examples that you give? So the, the best example is the one of my business partner who I co-authored the book with, Paul. Paul invested a million dollars to purchase a heating, ventilation, and air conditioning company in Youngstown, Ohio. 
he and his management team invested the million. They grew the business over 63 months and then they sold it for over 70 million. Wow. And yeah, so for the audience, you know, if you need a, a moment to process, invested a million with his team, a little over five years later, sold it for over 70 million. And what Paul and his team did that was different is that they began with the end in mind, which I don't think is a new concept if you've read business books, but to think about where do we need to be if we wanna realize a big exit with this company? What can we do to build value such that someone would pay us um, for what we create? And then how can we work backwards to get to what we need to do next? And that's where we really, all I did, I came along and uh, after being friends with Paul, took his process and we broke it down into four gears and an emergency break. And those four gears in the emergency break are really that recession readiness model that we um, talk about in the book. So the first thing, for example, first gear is that Paul um, assessed where he and his team were. They got a benchmark for their readiness for the next recession before that, you know, they got into the recession to just understand where they were. And so we've paralleled that work uh, in our book. Got it. And so talk to me about, you talk about recessions, right? And let's, let's use the HVAC example company. Was, was, was when he bought that, was it, was HVAC companies in a recession that we didn't know about? Like, or was it just the opportune time to come in and purchase it for a million bucks? Because that's the first question. The second question will be obviously how we go and get to to 70 million but but was that did he identify a, a lull in the market for hvac supply companies that he could go and snap up something at a, at a discount so he was cfo of a large hvac company and then became president of that company and the company was owned by uh, a large utility and they decided that they were going to get out of all of their ancillary businesses and focus on the core of what they mm -hmm. did. And so uh, they came to him and gave him the opportunity to buy the company. And so the million they invested was cash and the rest of how they purchased the company was debt. I don't want to bore you with the details of that. Sure. It's just to say that when he bought it though, the HVAC company was focused on construction. And what that mm -hmm. means is that they, you know, when you need a new air conditioner, they would be the ones that would come out and do the project for 5,000, 10,000, and they would put a new HVAC unit uh, on the roof of your building. They focused mostly on commercial. So they would come and they would put the big HVAC unit on the roof of your building. And Paul, uh, as he reports it, is an economic geek. And so he saw that we were heading towards a recession in this country, much like we are now in the US. And said, you know, I don't think in a recession people are going to want to spend $5,000, $10,000 uh, on a new HVAC unit. I think they would rather service their existing unit and just put a Band-Aid on it to get through the recession. And then post-recession, they'd be willing to invest the capital to buy a new unit. And so he and his team embarked on a year of just switching the business from being 80% construction and 20% service to completely reversing the model. So they blew the business up and rebuilt it to get to 80% service and 20% construction. So that when the recession hit, they were known for being a service provider of HVAC work. And there were a lot of customers for that. They had massive tailwinds and were able to quickly grow and then um, realize a dream outcome 
because of that, um, that intuition for there's a recession coming. What can I do in my business? What do I need to do to blow it up, to remake it so that it's going to be um, in high demand in the recession? Got it. No, I think that's a great, a great example of changing the mindset of a company that was focused on new construction or new builds to a service-based company. I think that also has a bit more ancillary, ancillary income on a monthly basis because you can have repeat customers that are coming back you know, with, with, with monthly contracts or yearly contracts to service large air conditioning um, you know, properties. You know, I own properties with, with ACs on it and we have them go out all the bloody time and I wish they didn't, but we have, we have monthly contracts where people come in every single month and check on them to make sure that the, the, you know, we're doing repairs and maintenance as needed and not having to re replace 10, 15 of them at a time. So very, very interesting stuff. Um, Jonathan, I want to get into more of the what you do, the special source of what you bring to companies in order to make them be successful and, and in and around the book um, of how you go out and tell people that you shouldn't be afraid of the recession, uh, that, that, that one is coming and you can only capitalize on that. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So the, you know, the recession.com is the website. Um, and yes, uh, read that really is our website. Um, we can talk <laughs> about how that happened, but um, at, at recession.com, Paul and I put together a 20 question assessment. So if the audience is listening and they want to go take it, that's great. It's free. 20 questions, takes five-ish minutes. You get a score from zero to 100. Let's you know how ready um, you are, your company is for the next recession. But that's really the starting point. And so with my clients, we start there with the assessment. And then depending on how they answer the questions, if they're green, uh, yellow, or red on each of those questions, then we dig into uh, taking a couple a quarter and just working on those uh, answers to get the red ones to yellow, the yellow ones to green. And then sometimes it's about taking the things you're really good at as a company and leveraging them. So it could be that you're green when it comes to your profit margin and you can leverage that and take it to the next level. So for example, um, one of the things I'm thinking about here is that with Paul, um, HVAC companies typically are not high margin businesses because it's commodity type work. And so what was weird about how they approach things is that they had an IT department with 18 people in it. There wow. are very few um, HVAC companies with 18 IT people. And the reason is that they were doing a lot of energy management and energy monitoring so that they could see how efficient their clients HVAC systems were and look for places for them to save money with the system. You know, if nobody was in the building, does the system need to be on? What's the right. optimal temperature to set it to at night so that it can drop low enough uh, that it can still get back to temperature in the morning? And by providing that intellectual capital, that IP, they were able to command a lot more in the market than all of their competitors who obviously were just trying to provide their service for the lowest price possible. And so I guess as I think about um, your audience and I think about um, real estate uh, uh, investing and then just basically investing in the US, it's just thinking through what can, um, what can you do that adds extra value that nobody else is doing? How can you create something where the competition is irrelevant, let alone just you have a slightly lower price than everybody else? I think that's incredibly good stuff. Competition 
becomes irrelevant through IP. And I think that is that that's kind of what you foster, right? What's what the services you provide with, with companies. You come in and look at that score and see what type of IP you can develop within the company in order to make their competition go away and they then rise to the top and become the, the cream of the industry. Is that yeah, right? Yeah, I'm not the, look, there's plenty of consultants on continuous improvement and lean. Uh, if you want to squeeze some waste out of your business, if you want to get 10% more productive, uh, I'm not your guy. Uh, I'm sure that there are others that are black belt, qualified, have studied it much better at that piece. My thought is just always, how do we just, how do we do something that the industry's never done before or that your company's never done before that can allow us to have a 10x type of uh, a differentiation such that we're not spending our time together figuring out how can we do this a little bit cheaper than everybody else. I wanna do something such that you're the only game in town because then we can make real money, we can have a real margin, and we can have real runway to go do bigger things. Uh, and I find most of the time companies are trying to figure out how with limited resources, what should we do next? And I don't have a lot of magic for that. I call it, you, you know, you're usually trying to pick what's our least bad option. And that's not, um, I'm just not, that doesn't get me out of bed in the morning. You know, right. I mean, like I told you during our, our pre-interview, I madly in love with my wife, madly in love with my two girls, my, my kids. So if I'm going to, you know, fly and go meet with a company, we've got to be disruptive. We've got to figure out how we can look forward to recessions, do something crazy that's worth um, flying for. So give me another couple of examples of other businesses you've worked with in terms of that disruptive factor in order to be, to be ready for the recession. Sure. Well, so I'll, I'll give you one of my clients, um, but I also want to, one other story um, from the sure. book that I was excited about is um, I got to interview Christy Hefner. Uh, Christy was um, CEO of Playboy Enterprises um, mm. after uh, her dad was uh, CEO and she ran the company and we were talking about uh, recessions uh, because Playboy certainly went through a uh, recession and just talking about, you know, how did she approach that? And so this was back when um, there were still newsstands, which I know um, <laughs> I, I've been to LA. I come out once a quarter because I've got some clients there. I don't see many newsstands anymore. Um, I was just in New York um, to be on TV and I didn't see uh, many newsstands there anymore. But back when there were newsstands and Playboy was on them, she said what they understood was that in a recession, people go out less. They don't go to the mm. newsstand as often and they tighten up on discretionary expenses. And uh, I think I maybe even got her to admit that Playboy could be viewed by some as discretionary. <laughs> and so they started to pivot a lot of their focus to increasing their marketing, which is counterintuitive, and focusing on the licensing of the Playboy um, logo and trademark, because they knew that if they were branded with um, Zippo lighters or clothing apparel, the people still need clothing in a recession. They still buy lighters in recessions. And so they could focus more on the licensing piece. And then if they spent more on marketing, they knew that everybody else in a recession usually cuts marketing. And so if they spent more at Playboy, that every dollar they spent on marketing and advertising would actually have a bigger ROI than it did in good times. Right. And so some counterintuitive yes. things I think that, that she brought up that I thought were really um, insightful, innovative, and disruptive. 
I'm interrupting this episode to remind you guys about the Syndicator Incubator Mastermind Group. If you want to take your investing career to the next level and surround yourself with the best in the business, then apply today. Spots are filling up fast. I'm only taking a handful of people for the next round, so get your application by emailing me at info, I-N-F-O, at reedgoosens.com. Remember, be bold, be brave, and go give life a crack. Now, back into the show. That, that's that's tr- completely true. And I didn't actually think of it like that, where your money will go further in a recession on marketing than it would in the good times. And because you're the only only bloke in the street, right? right. <laughs> so to speak, no one's no one's actually in the street because everyone's in home, you know, saving dollars. So that's uh, that's a different way of thinking. Um, what, are the, what are the ways in those top 20 questions that you get your clients to do to look inward in order to shake out that disruptive thought that you can go out and you can get that aha moment. This is what we're going to do. We're going to spend more money in the marketing. We're going to do some licensing stuff with lighters and clothing. Or on the other side, we can go and do, um, you're talking about earlier about the, the HVAC company changing it from 80% construction to service-based. What what are you thinking? What are you trying to shake out of the CEO in order to get that, that aha moment of going and getting disruptive? Well, do you know, um, are, are you familiar with like a SWOT analysis? Yes, I am. Okay, I hate those. Um, <laughs> so I, the SWOT, you know, let's think about our strengths, our weaknesses, our opportunities, our threats. Uh, it's very old school, um, but it's easy to facilitate for a consultant. Mm-hmm. So I think that's why so many still do it. Um, what I prefer is this language of the blue ocean strategy. And there's a book by Kim and Mauborn, Um and I love it because it's a lot more current. The research that they've done uh, is, you know, uh, it's a lot more recent. SWAT came out back in the 50s. Uh, so I like that it's updated. But I also think that the output from that is a lot more actionable. So what I mean by that is you could list out your strengths and your weaknesses. And then the question is, so what? You know, what? what? So now I know what I'm really good at and not good at. So what? But in the blue ocean framework, it's really what could I eliminate from my current business that if I got rid of it, my customers wouldn't care and it doesn't make me uh, more revenue or more profit. I'm just doing it because I've always done business this way. And so I really, I want um, the audience to think through, you know, we, we, we're so busy that we don't take time to slow down and do the deep work of thinking about what is it that I could eliminate? Cause I promise there's probably 10% of everything that we're all doing, that we could just not do it and it wouldn't make a difference. And then thinking through what you can reduce from your business. So you might be listening still, and you might be like, yeah, I get it, Reed, I get it, Jonathan, but um, you know, I can't eliminate everything from my business, but maybe you could reduce it. You could do less of it than um, you're currently doing. And by what you eliminate and reduce, you then have time to work on raising other parts of your business that you could do more of. So maybe it's something that your competitors and you do at a baseline level, but now you're going to take it um, up three or four notches, 10 notches, and really be disruptive with it. And then the last piece would be uh, figuring out what can we create. So what is it that nobody in my industry does? What is it that we've never done that we can create a new program around that can really be disruptive? And so like Paul and his team at the HVAC company, were disruptive because they created a whole energy management program. They created an mm-hmm. IT department of 18 people to help service their clients' needs in that area. Nobody else was doing that in HVAC when they started doing it. 
And so that disruption allowed them to command a much higher price for their services. I think that's incredibly important to obviously look at the, the deep blue ocean and see what you can cut down on, but also allowing the time and mental energy to think about other things. And we talk a lot about on this show, particularly when it comes to being a CEO or an entrepreneur, looking at uh, your what's your black time. I call it black, blue, and red time, which is black time is money generating. Blue time is sort of like the, the manufacturing of the business and the red time is all the admin stuff. And allowing yourself to assess every single piece of your time in the day in order to free up that black time to think about more revenue generating ideas because you're too bogged down with the blue and too bogged down with the red. And I think that is what you're trying to say there is that you're, you're trying to do less of something that wouldn't make any difference to your customer or to your, you know, your, your, your bottom dollar, but allows you to focus then a little bit more on something in the, maybe the black time, which you can re- create more revenue generating products or IP um, or, or something disruptive, as you say, in order to go out and be recession. Yeah, Reed, we're totally on the same wavelength. I just call it CPR. Um, that's how CPR, I it. So I love it. It's just customer experience, profit and revenue. And if it doesn't uh, positively impact one of those three things, I just don't do it. And so mm. I'm, I've got- What's an ex- Give me an example of what, you, what you've seen that you've, you've heard and like, just don't do that. What, what, like, give, like just a real sure. life example sure. of one of your clients. What- sure. So um, let me give you an, a real life example from American Airlines. So sure. they, they did this blue ocean planning and uh, they asked everyone, what could we um, reduce uh, that we're currently doing? And one of the flight attendants, and I, I know, I know, this was a few years ago because it was back when they had um, meals in first class and they were good. Um, but one of the flight attendants said, look, I noticed that on a lot of the meals that we serve um, in first class that I throw out the olives that we put on the salads. So what if we just, you know, there's three olives, it's on every salad. What if we put less olives on the salads? And so American Airlines um, cut out an olive from each salad. And over hundreds of thousands of salads, that savings added up to 50,000 to 100,000 bucks a year reportedly. So it's just, you know, when was the last time we looked at what we're doing and just eliminated or reduced the things that aren't adding value for our customers, but we just always do it. Another example from one of my clients is they had somebody um, in their accounting department producing a report Mm -hmm. uh, and she did it every month and she put it in a file cabinet and nobody ever read it. <laughs> like they were like, it's, I don't remember. It was like office space, but she's producing this report. She's printing it. She's stapling it and filing it because nobody ever reads it or does anything, but she's dutifully just still producing uh, the report. So what are those reports that we're generating or what's the olive on your salad that if you what's got rid of it, um, nobody would notice or care. Um, so I think uh, it's, it's, you know, I love what you were saying in terms of um, black, blue, and red time. For me, it's doing a time study. Mm-hmm. And all I mean by that is every half an hour for a week, just write down a few words about what you're doing. Sending emails, making phone calls, uh, in the bathroom. Uh, I don't need any more detail on that. And just, just figure out the buckets of all the things you're doing. And then just ask yourself if you're cool with it and if it's working for you. And if it is, great. And if the fact that you're spending 60% of your time on email isn't working for you, then you can start to figure out what you want to do. But, right. but for me, um, I, I think a lot of knowledge workers um, are so busy responding to email, phone calls, and whoever stops by your office that they're not getting any real traction. 
you know, it, it's sort of like putting out fires, right? They're constantly being a firefighter and just reacting rather than being proactive about the, the, the next step in the business and allowing that mental clarity to do the black time, what's going to propel the business forward rather than just be in the blue, in the red and constantly boom, 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 boom and trying to just put out fires all the time, which doesn't help. Well, e- so. emails and phone calls are other people's priorities for your time. They're <laughs> right. not yours. But if you don't have a plan, then you know you just always default to doing whatever comes up next. So if you're mm. cool with that, um, I'm okay with it. It's just I at some point um, figured out that for me that doesn't work. That doesn't work. So, so what what examples or what tips can you give the audience right now to besides that thirty hour chunking? Any other tips that they can do in their week that they can start figuring out what the hell they don't need to be doing? <laughs> <laughs> well, that, so uh, for me, a lot of it is uh, the time study, but then you're figuring out what can I eliminate, what can I automate, and what can I delegate. So those for me are kind of the three buckets that I look for. And by eliminate, I mean, you're just going to stop doing it. So for me, uh, I've figured out that LinkedIn is the only social media uh, that I do because the rest of them um, don't help grow my business or do anything for me besides being uh, distracting. Mm. When it comes to automate, there are tons of apps uh, out there that can help make life easier. So for me, it's there's the TripIt app. I used to spend a bunch of time um, trying to get all my travel coordinated. Now I just um, trip it, goes through all my emails. It sees the ones that are from United or American Airlines or Hilton or Marriott, and it automatically takes that information and puts it into an itinerary for me. I don't know, the app's like 50 bucks a year, and now I don't have to worry about coordinating my travel. Whatever it is for you that's that time bandit, and this is because of my time study, I started to realize how much time I spend just on travel logistics. And for Mm. me, my clients don't care um, how much time I spend on travel and who's booking it. In fact, if they knew, they would be pissed off that I'm wasting so much time on travel instead (laughs) of helping them think about how to grow their business. Um, So that was another, and the last one is to delegate. So um, when it comes to delegation, I know... The audience, um, you know, you said you have a lot of investors, uh, a lot of solopreneurs. They may be rolling their eyes right now. Uh, you know, I, I can't even, who am I going to delegate to? I can't afford an admin. The, the world is great right now in that it's a global community. There's websites like Fiverr and Upwork where you can hire people um, to be your outsourced admin. And so I would say you could look into those. I have no affiliation, by the way, with either of those websites besides using them. But if you can hire somebody that would love, you know, there's somebody that loves organization or there's somebody that loves design. I mean, my designer, uh, Yasmin, is in South Africa and she's super creative. And the best part is because of the time change, I'll email her something that I need and in the morning when I wake up, it's already there in my inbox. So I just right. think, again, for the audience, I would be thinking through what can I eliminate, what can I automate, and what can I delegate? I love it. No, I think it's so super important. Um, I want to be respectful of your time, but my last question before we get into the lightning round is recession.com, mate. Um, a- answer me the question. When do you think the big uh, R word is coming? Yeah, so for me, I do think there will be an event in late 2020. And I choose the word event because I don't know if we're going to have an actual recession, which the technical definition is two quarterly declines in GDP. Uh, But I do think that we're going to see uh, investors, businesses, and individuals 
slow down their spending the closer that we get to the election in the US. I think people are going to tighten up because they're going to want to wait to see what happens with the election uh, before uh, moving forward. And when consumers uh, and businesses tighten up with their spending, that's actually what causes us to go into a recession, obviously. So uh, I do think we're going to see that towards the end of next year. Uh, but honestly, Reed, I mean, it's like we've been focused a lot on economic recessions, but everything in the book works, even if you don't agree with me that we're going to have an event or a recession next year. Right. Because in your business, in your life, if you lose your biggest customer, then you're in a recession. In a recession. You know, yeah. if you're, yeah. um, you know, if you're an investor and all your partners decide to go form a competing firm, then you're in a recession. Or if, you know, one of your investments tanks um, or there's a regulatory change and all of a sudden there's new taxes on real estate at the federal level or the state level, or there's a big change to the tax code. I mean, I'm sure, um, you know, you've, we've experienced this lately. Um, all those things could put you in a recession agnostic of what's going on in the, in the economy. And a lot of the stuff in the book, um, in Rock the Recession, is really just good business hygiene. I'm just choosing to use recessions as a way to help market uh, the work that we're doing. Awesome. No, I think that's really inspiring stuff. And I do think yeah, a political event will cause a little bit of a slowdown and everyone all sort of holds their breath to see what happens and what's going what's gonna to come down the pike. So I completely agree with you. Um, mate, I know you have a hard stop here coming up, but I want to be re really respectful of your time. Great. Are you ready to dive into the top five investing tips? Let's do it. Mate, what is the daily habit you practice to keep on track towards your goals? Uh, I like to eat the frog. Uh, so uh, I don't know, there, there's a book called Eat the Frog, but Mark Twain um, famously remarked that if every day you got up and you ate a live frog, that everything else for the rest of the day would seem that much easier. <laughs> so for me, the way that I translate that is that every day I try to get up and eat a frog first thing. It's just whatever is that thing that I need to get done today that if I got it done, that no matter what happens when I put my head on the pillow at the end of the day, I'm not going to feel like it was a wasted day or I'm not going to mm -hmm. wonder what I even got done today because I know that after I eat my frog that, you know, my emails might blow up, my phone might blow up, the rest of my day might get taken up, but at least I've gotten that one big thing done for the day that I can be proud of that moved me forward. So I start my day with black time. Awesome. Love it. Love it. Love it. Love it. Um, who is the most influential person in your career to date? Yeah, I got to um, give a shout out to my co-author, Paul. I mean, Paul's really the one that got me going uh, 10 years ago on my whole life planning journey. And so I would say that he helped me to understand that unless I figure out where I want to be at the end of my life and start working my way backwards and doing the activities today, that will take me closer to that, that I may still be humping it um, in, the, uh, in the fitness world instead of doing what I'm truly passionate about and love doing. Awesome, awesome. Uh, I know you mentioned some apps earlier, but this third question is, what's the most influential tool in your business? Now, it doesn't have to be software related. It can be a hardware, physical phone or someone, but what's the most influential tool in your business today? 
I, I want to, can I'm going to tweak your question a little bit just because yeah. I think that um, the most popular responses, um, you know, I was listening to uh, episodes of the show. And so I understand what some of the most popular responses are. I want to try to go with one that I'm hoping you haven't heard, at least not sure. lately, which is a teleprompter. Huh. Um, okay. And so, no. Yeah. So, so my thought here is that um, I have a terrible time with memorizing and uh, I find it to be really distracting um, trying to memorize uh, material. And so you can get a teleprompter. They're two or 300 bucks. It's really a black box with a mirror. And then I just put my iPad in it and it feeds me whatever I need to say. And so I can just read that teleprompter like the politicians do, like they do on TV, like they do at big speeches. And that helps me uh, in terms of being able to get a message out to my audience that I'm proud of instead of bumbling or spending a bunch of time trying to memorize. So that would be kind of a game changer from this year for me. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's, that's, that's interesting. How often do you use a teleprompter? I guess is the other question. Do you use it daily? Uh, I, I don't know. Uh, so at least weekly. I mean, I have okay. it set up in my office all the time. So I don't know if it's a daily thing, um, but at least weekly for sure. Awesome. Mate, in one sentence, what has been the biggest failure in your career to date? What did you learn from that failure? Oh, this is easy. It was borrowing uh, a quarter of a million dollars from my mother-in-law at my fitness business. Um, and I, I think what I, yeah, <laughs> and I see the look on your face. The, the worst <laughs> part, dude, is that I didn't even borrow it all at once. You know, I borrowed it um, $20,000 at a time. Wow. Every two weeks when I needed to make payroll, I would call her uh, and ask her to borrow more and borrow again. I don't know. Um, for me, what I learned though, is that I didn't have um, a plan for when I would stop. Like, you know, if I had, I, I think if I had gone back and I had been in the cool rational light of day and said, you know, if I ever borrow over a hundred thousand from my mother-in-law, that's it, I'm done, I'm out. Um, or, you know, I'm just gonna bankruptcy, whatever it might be. But I didn't have that. And so it was always emotional that every two weeks um, I made another call and I got into the sunk cost mentality. So mm. it's easy once I've already invested 100 to be like, well, it's just another 20. Um, so it never, you know, I, I don't know why I thought after the 10th phone call that borrowing an 11th chunk would turn the corner. Um, and now that I've paid her back, you know, we're still able to have Thanksgiving and not have it be awkward. Um, but what, what I learned is that, you know, when we're emotional, um, I was just making bad decisions. So now I have a plan that's written down. I've done it when times are good, um, when I've got money in the bank so that I can hold myself accountable um, if I ever do get myself into that spot again. I love it. I think that's a really, really solid piece of advice. And the fact that you can now have Christmas all together at once, right? <laughs> Exactly. Well, I think if I hadn't gotten her paid back, I think it might be a different story. Right, but right. I think you're, it, this you're did, it, of... it did bring us closer together, but it was expensive and it was painful. I could imagine. I could only imagine. I could only imagine. Uh, mate, last question for you. Where can people reach you to continue the conversation? You've been incredibly valuable on this show today. I could continue talking to you for hours, but uh, where do they go? Where do they get the book from? Yeah, so the book's on Amazon and recession.com is our hub for everything else. So they can contact me. My email is jonathan at recession.com. And then if you want, we can do um, uh, some kind of a, a discount code if people want to go get the Rock the Recession workbook, 
um, we can work it out uh, and then put it in the show notes if people awesome. um, are interested. You know, if they go do the assessment on recession.com and then they want to take the next step, we can we can figure something out for them there. Perfect. I think we would love to do that. But um, mate, I want to thank you for dropping by and uh, giving us so much incredible value today. Some of the things that I took away from today's show, I think is the, you know, the, the basic stuff, the eliminate, the automate, the delegate. I think that's all the basic sort of stuff. But I think the way in which you approach your different uh, views on how to look at a recession, how to understand that the, the economy might not be in a recession, but you personally might be in a recession. I think that really hit home for, for me when you sort of said, as soon as you lose your biggest client, you're in a recession. As soon as a deal goes bad, you're in a recession. The partners go away, you're in a recession. And that's what we've also got to keep mindful of within our own businesses. When do you hit recession times? And it might be completely different to what's happening in the economy. Yeah, dude, I got to shoehorn one more in because you just brought it up. Sure. Again. Like I know um, you're in LA, right? Uh, yep. So- uh, California, the legislature recently passed a law saying that mm-hmm. we're not going to allow single-use plastics, right? right? So if you're uh, a plastics manufacturer or if you're in California and you're doing single-use plastics, maybe those uh, the cute little bottles of shampoo um, for yep. hotels. Yep. Guess what just happened? Boom. I mean, yep. you know, now, now what are you doing? Now you're in a recession unless you have a plan for what you would do if that law ever got passed, because now you're executing on whatever your strategies are, while everybody else that's making um, little shampoo bottles is scrambling to figure out how they're going to catch up. Or if you're um, making um, single-use water bottles, now you're scrambling to figure out what you're going to do, while the the folks that saw this um, working its way through the legislature and already have aluminum um, cans ready to go, are way ahead of you. So that that's what I'm talking about when it comes to non-economic recessions. And there's a lot of legislation always percolating through all levels, local, state, federal government. And so with some research and some energy, that's what we do as entrepreneurs is we find those opportunities. So that's why I get jacked up about it. So sorry to no, go off I, on I that tangent. It. No, that's, that's, no, it's a great example of something that's happened recently that can impact the plastics manufacturing company or business or world and you need to be ready for it. And it's just not being sitting, sit, like I think what you said before about when the times are good, be disciplined enough to know what's coming down the pike. If you don't, you're going to be sideswiped and you're going to be blown out of the water. And so that's really important as entrepreneurs to continue to be disciplined when times are good because something, they're not always going to be good forever. And so that's, uh, that's definitely something awesome. Look, mate, I want to thank you again for jumping on the show. Enjoy the rest of your week. Have a happy holidays and uh, thank you so much. All right, dude, rock on. Thanks for having me. Thank you, mate. Well, look, there you have another cracking episode jam-packed with some incredible advice from Jonathan. Please head over to his website at recession.com. Check out those top 20 questions and see how your business is reacting in your personal recession. If there's anything coming down the pike that you don't know about, it's definitely something to get uh, to, 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 and, and get the book. I got to imagine, get the book. Make sure you get the book because the book is really important to help you understand what's going to happen in your personal life if a recession is to come around the corner anytime soon. I want to thank you again for taking some time time out of your day to continue to tune into this show each and every week because we're all about increasing your financial IQ. If you do like this show, please give back by giving us a five-star review on iTunes and you can follow me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram if you're out there on the social media sphere. Uh, we're going to do it all again next week. So be bold, be brave, and remember, go give life a crack.